0: I'm Molly Wansel.
1: And I'm Geoffrey Wonsel.
0: And for the last sixteen years or thereabouts we've been having lunch every Saturday, and often our conversation turns to murder.
1: Which is what prompted us to start this true crime podcast called Blood Ties.
0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the Blood Ties Podcast. I'm Molly Wonsell and I'm here with my father, Geoffrey Wonsel.
1: Hello everyone, thank you again for listening. This is a particularly interesting two episodes we're gonna talk about.
0: Yeah, we're doing a double bill.
1: We're doing Two episodes on the Moors murderers, a name everybody recognises, but curiously, a whole generations don't really know who they were. I mean, Hindley died in 2002.
0: I know their faces and their names, but I don't know the stories that well. That,
1: that's the point. and I, I tried just randomly talking to a few people, even those you know, in their 40s and 50s. And only one or two could actually pin down what the crimes were and why they were so horrendous. And I think it's worth telling the story again for a new generation.
0: Great. Well, that's what we're aiming to do today.
1: That's what we're here for. Anything exciting this week? I haven't been... I went to the Terence Rattigan annual dinner. That was fun, fun, nice.
0: Very nice. Uh, I was away this week. Well, I was meant to be away on a National Trust road trip with Mum. Uh, but it rained so much we gave up and came
1: home <laughs> yes it's very difficult to do national trust gardens well, in the well there's pouring. no point
0: going around a garden in the rain isn't there really. we did what we went to one house and we had to sort of walk up a very long drive in our max and it was all terribly british and everyone was sort of like the national trust ladies were sort of rushing to the a hallway to with the mop, you know, yep. to stop the onslaught of water coming in the front door
1: and Oh yeah I can imagine.
0: The only thing that I really like we went to a place called Charlcott. We were sort of in Warwickshire and Worcestershire. Anyway, we gave up. But um this place Charlotte had um has the best carriage collection
1: oh, of all
0: the National Trust properties. I've never seen a Victorian or carriage close up before. Mm. That was really cool. They mm. had like three four, no, five different types. Uh, and that was great. And yeah. the tack room was amazing. Apart from, oh, and actually, to be fair, some grand people bought this house in the Victorian times and wanted to have big parties. So I'm really super into Victorians, as we know. So I they know. had built a really excellent kitchen in serv- servants' quarters, which, again, is something I'm super into. So that was good. Oh, that's very
1: good, darling. Well, I didn't do it. We had a very nice um, email from a man I work with on live shows um, and has a true crime podcast The UK
0: True Crime podcast.
1: Yes, so thank you, Adam. And do have a listen to UK True Crime podcast.
0: Definitely. Um, All right, well, shall we get going? Um, We had tried to divide this into sort of separate into Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, but we worked out that doesn't quite work, does it, Dad? So we're going to do two parts.
1: And the first part is what you might describe until they met and their upbringing. And the second part, the murders themselves. And the trial and the aftermath. Great. So basically, we're taking it up until they decide to commit the perfect crime together.
0: So here we go with the Moors Murderers Part 1.
1: Ian Brady was born on the 2nd of January, 1938, in Scotland. He was uh, the illegitimate son of an unmarried tea shop waitress called Margaret, also known as Peggy Stewart. His father is rumoured to have been a local journalist who died before Brady was born. So Brady was born Ian Stewart. But Margaret Peggy had a terrible job with babysitting, and minding him. And in the end, effectively farmed him out to a couple called Mary and Joan Sloan, who already had four children. So, Ian Stewart became Ian Sloan. He was always the outsider. The other children who were the Sloan's natural children. And I wouldn't say they ostracised him, but they certainly didn't make him feel all that welcome. Plus the fact that Brady was naturally clever. Rebellious, difficult, but very smart.
0: Sometimes I think being too clever is not a good
1: thing. Yes, I, I would agree with that myself. <laughs>
0: I think it sends you, like even if you don't have a tendency towards uh, um, evil, it can send you a bit loopy.
1: Yes, I would think that's an entirely fair point.
0: Mm.
1: Anyway, he's rumoured to have, in that classic um, form, uh, tortured animals when he was small something we've talked about many times. Mm -hmm. But one thing that is significant, at the age of nine, for the first time, he's taken out of the Gorbals, where he's born and brought up in Glasgow, and taken on a trip to Loch Lomond, which is a little journey, not a huge one, from uh, west of Glasgow. And he discovers an extraordinary love for the countryside. Now, this is significant because later, when we come to the murders, you will see how important the countryside is to Brady. He goes to a really quite good um, school, high achievers, at the age of 11, in 1949. But he doesn't settle. He's, I think he, he was very self-conscious of his own cleverness. He saw himself as a bit of an outsider, a bit of a rebel. He's by now quite tall, not bad looking, if you look at pictures of Brady, um, he doesn't, he doesn't fit in. He's never fitted in anywhere. Um, now, one of the interesting things about Brady, or at least to me, is he never did national service. I have never got to the bottom of why Brady did not do his national service. It was of, he was of an age... When, when was he, sh- he born again? He was born in 1938. They didn't abolish national service until 1960.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: Yes. It's one of those little strangenesses in the story that no one's ever quite explained to me. Mm. It, anyway, he, he leaves school. He has a couple of appearances in juvenile court for, ho- for housebreaking. Uh, um, he leaves school at 15 to go and work in a shipyard, and then he works as a butcher's messenger. This, again, is significant later because... He has an appetite for blood. He threatened his then-girlfriend with a flick knife and just before the age of 17 was given probation on the grounds that he left Glasgow and went to live with his real mother, Peggy Stewart, who by this time has married an Irishman called Patrick Brady. So the ma- the boy born Ian Stewart, who has become the young man called Ian Sloan, has now become... Ian Brady Brady goes to uh, to live with him in Manchester at the age of about 17 now comes an interesting part of Brady's growing up. He goes to work uh, in a fruit market and is caught stealing now because of his previous contact with the law which said he had to travel to england he isn't given what the lenient treatment he thought he would he thought well everybody steals in the market anyway it's only a few bits of copper or bits of lead or doesn't really matter but instead he finds himself in strange ways one of the most notorious northern prisons in manchester and he spends three months there and then on top of that he gets two years of borstal training Now, for a man who already feels that he is being different, and he's very different, Brady takes this badly. I mean, he really does. Colin Wilson, one of the people who communicated with Brady a lot, and indeed uh, was the man who gave me his copy of uh, Brady's book, The Face of Janus, believes that it was that resentment at the Borstal training that made him convinced that he was going to be a, a, a murderer. He, 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 was ext- he was so angry, and he started to read. He was became a voracious reader. Not just Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, everybody knows that he read Crime and Punishment, but also Nietzsche, Mein Kampf. He became a Nazi in all but name. Mm. He was fascinated. He didn't like the memorabilia. I wasn't wearing you know, swastika arm bands or anything like that. But he really was influenced by Hitler, and particularly by Mein Kampf. This sense of being an outsider, someone different, someone who is, well if not above the law then certainly can disregard the law. So you have a man for whom I suppose you could say nihilism was invented. He is a narcissist and he's a nihilist. He doesn't believe in God. He dates very much in the Nietzsche tradition. Mm -hmm. He's decided also that he's going to better himself. So he studies accountancy in the evenings in his bedroom uh, with Ian and with Brady and his mother and turns himself into a bit of a clerk. And finally, in January 1959, he gets a job, he's 21, he gets a job at a chemical factory called Millwood's in Gorton in Manchester. He's still feeding his love of Russian literature. He's now taken up Tolstoy. Lord Longford, who also Mm. campaigned for Brady to have better treatment when he was alive, the late Lord Longford, who I was lucky enough to call a friend, always used to tell me that Brady knew more about Tolstoy and Dostoevsky than any other person he'd ever met. Really? Yes, he's an extraordinary man. I mean, I'm not admiring him. I'm simply saying he was quite an extraordinary man. I'm into Tolstoy. He, by this time, has a Tiger Club, Tiger Club, Cub Motor Bicycle, which he tours the Pennines, the Moors, outside Manchester. He's quiet, he's purposeful, but he's short-tempered. Well, he, he's happy enough at Millwoods, in his own way. But at Millwoods is where he encounters the woman that was to become his accomplice and indeed his partner. Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley was born in Manchester. She didn't come from Glasgow. She was actually born there. She was born in Crumpsall, and raised in Gorton, not that far from the chemical factory, actually. Uh, she was born on the 23rd of July, 1942.
0: So she's th- a little bit younger than him. Just a little, mm.
1: yeah. Her father, Bob, was ex-paratrooper. He'd been in the war he was an alcoholic and he was also abusive. She was baptised a Catholic. And that again is important because she returns to Catholicism at certain points in her life. They lived in a basically one room. Um, they were so poor. He, Bob, her father, had this reputation in the army of being something of a sort of hard man. And he kept it up. He would never let her back down in a fight. He taught Hindley. His first child, they went on to have a sister, another younger sister called Maureen. He taught her never to back down. If he's in a fight, you fight back. And it's it was important because at the age of eight, she's attacked by a boy of about her age and runs home to her father, Bob, who insists that she goes back out there And hits the boy, otherwise he's going to hit her. So Hindley, at the age of eight, goes outside, back outside, finds the boy and knocks him down. (laughs) And she says, at the age of eight, I had my first knockout. I mean... That's quite... It's quite... Some say, and it's only a possible theory, that that incident at the age of eight was the inciting incident that that would lead her to murder.
0: Well, because she enjoyed it?
1: Yes. I'm not saying it's true. I'm Mm. simply saying he's one of those suggestions. There is another interesting element in Hindley's childhood. She has a friend called Michael Higgins, who's 13. She's now in her adolescence. And he says, why don't we go together to... Swim in, the disused, in a disused reservoir Not far out of Manchester And she said I don't think I want to go And he goes With another friend and drowns And Many of her friends at the time Say that Hindley blamed herself Because she was a good swimmer For not being there and for not saving him
0: oh,
1: It's a, sad It's an interesting and another element Of what goes to make up this woman Um at the age of 16, in 1948, she returns to Catholicism. Her father had her baptised, Bob had her baptised, a the Catholic, but on the insistence that she never, never went near a Catholic school. He, he insisted they were no good at all. However, Hindley herself returned to Catholicism at 16, and indeed she uh, is, um, took instruction, as, as one does if one's returning to Catholicism. And in November 1958, takes her first communion she's 16 at Christmas 1958 she begins a brief relationship with a man young man called Ronnie Sinclair and they become engaged the following year they're both 17 but she breaks it off finally after a number of months even though they have got engaged because she says he's too immature I mean he's 17 so yes I'm not surprising really, yeah. but never mind <laughs> But she also starts to morph. In 1959, she starts dyeing her hair pink. And she gets takes to wearing leather jackets. And um, she a punk? Uh, well, it was a long time before punks. And she also starts taking, interestingly, judo lessons.
0: Right. Well, she wants to be able to defend herself.
1: Absolutely. Again... The influence of her father, Bob, is everywhere because at the judo classes, not many people are prepared to fight her because uh, she tends to keep the hold a bit long. She doesn't tend to uh, let go once she's won, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm, I don't want to make that sound amusing. I mean, it is actually indicative of her character. Yeah. There is something in that character taught at her father's knee and knuckle um, that was to come become very important. But the essential and the most interesting moment comes. In January 1961, when she joins Millwoods, the chemical factory that Ian Brady is already working at. She's a shorthand typist by this time, and the first bit of dictation given to her at Millwoods is by one Ian Brady.
0: Mm.
1: Hindley is infatuated. I mean, he's quite handsome, He's, he's very silent... He doesn't, you know, he doesn't say much. Got quite sort of piercing eyes,
0: intelligent and broody.
1: Very broody,
0: sitting around in the tea room reading yeah. Dostoevsky.
1: Yes, and, and remember, he's got a bit of a criminal past. You know, he's been in strange ways, and he's been in balls. We've talked about let, this before. Let
0: us go back to our favourite topic: Why do women like bad men?
1: Why is it that good women like bad men? <clears throat> um, she begins a diary very shortly after she encounters brady in which she lists her her infatuation oh he isn't he, i think he's looked at me how oh.
0: old is he she by
1: this point well it's 1961 Twin. she's 19 going 19. on 20
0: i mean that's normal when girls go into guys you know
1: yep well you've taught me that <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think she She literally i mean they didn't speak a word until july 1961 but she's still writing in her diary how fascinating I mean
0: I can find diaries of mine that are similar apart from I was 13 and not planning any kind of yeah. um, murder not well
1: even they weren't 13. at that point point. and finally it, it, she even gets to a point in the diary I think it's in November 1962 when she says oh, I can't be bothered with this anymore Brady's not and then on the 22nd of December Brady asks her out
0: well out of nowhere pretty or? much oh my goodness
1: suggests they go to the cinema and they go and see King of Kings. At Christmas. At Christmas. Um, and remember, he, he's clocked the fact that Brady is Catholic, of course. And, you know, it is. Hindley's Catholic. Hindley, sorry. It's very yep. Hindley's a Catholic.
0: Yeah.
1: Why is that relevant? Well, King of Kings is a story of.
0: Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> right. Got it. Okay. So well, I don't actually know what King of Kings is.
1: It's a story of Christ. Oh, right. Okay.
0: Yeah. He takes it to a Christmas. Yeah. Catholic
1: Christmas story Yes
0: Interesting Smart, smart He's a
1: smart guy Yes, no no one's Obviously
0: noticed that she's been Having her eye on him But she wasn't at all subtle about it either
1: No, no I don't think Hindley was subtle about it Uh, Anyway, about a week after King of Kings They uh, make love on the divan In the front room of the house That Hindley's been sharing with her grandmother For some time when Maureen, the second child, was born to Bob and his wife, Myra moved in with her gran. It was just around the corner. So Myra's been brought up pretty much between two houses and Maureen's stayed with the original house. Mm-hmm. So Myra takes Hindley back to the house and they become lovers, but they also become, curiously enough, quite rapidly soulmates um he gives her books to read you know you can imagine it she's 19 approaching 20 very impressionable mm. um he's oh charismatic in a way um because he's so difficult and so removed and so and i think she was later to say and i think it's very telling she didn't actually write this until 1978 1979 within months He had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west, and I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. And she was in love with him. Oh, absolutely. So? I mean, Brady didn't always treat her entirely well. At one point, there are suggestions that he drugged her. Certainly, he persuaded her to pose from series of inappropriately pornographic photographs. Um, of course, Brady was a keen photographer and he got a time lapse on his camera. So he would pose he would he would shoot pictures of her wearing underwear and then he would put the time lapse on. And they'd start making lovely take pictures. I think he was thinking of selling them at one point. It was a, it was a manipulative relationship.
0: From the outset. Pretty much. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense.
1: I mean, he was also giving you books like the Marquis de Sade, books about early sadomasochism. Um, He's very interested in... Sounds
0: like grooming to me.
1: uh, And to me, and to me. But yet again, the books, you know, you must read Crime and Punishment after all that's about a righteous murder. Now, Hindley is very keen on animals, and she has a dog called Puppet. Many people have always was later asked how it was that a woman who liked, clearly liked children and animals could turn herself into a murderer, murderess.
0: Because of him, I'd imagine.
1: I would have thought that was probably the case. She later said that Brady started to talk to her about murder in July 1963. Bear in mind, they met at a time when England was changing rapidly. You know, the swinging 60s had come in. Uh, But what they were talking about was something that was wildly beyond the concept of anybody, even in the 60s. They were talking about committing a perfect murder, a serial murder, serial murders, based on partly... Brady's interest in a case in America in 1924 when two young men called Leopold and Loeb kidnapped and killed a 14-year-old and escaped the death penalty because they were both under 18. Now that Brady found fascinating and clearly had an impression in his mind that Hindley and he could become as famous as Leopold and Loeb. I think Brady from the very beginning saw them as a double act. Now of course, you can talk about folly We've talked about it before. You know, two people are more dangerous if they're together. It's, it's not unusual. It's do you
0: think he picked, do you think that he had that in his mind before or as he was growing up? Or do you think as they got together, he thought, I now I, I can do this? I
1: think it's the, I think the trigger was King of Kings and the, you know, the divan bed in her grand's house. I think that was the moment when he thought, this is. It's especially, he'd had girlfriends before, but there was something special about Hindley.
0: I know, but what I mean is do you think before he got into relationships, he thought to himself, he was thinking about how to, yeah, find that person? I I wish I I knew.
1: It's a very good question, Mm. uh, Mo. I, I wish I knew the answer. Was he looking for someone or did he just chance upon Hindley? Whatever the truth. There is no doubt at all that in the early part of 1963, they started to talk about murder and talk about it quite in quite detail, a lot of detail. They also talked about robberies. Um, Brady was quite keen on money and he quite fancied knocking over a post office. But in fact, that didn't really happen. But one of the things it did was he persuaded Hindley to learn to drive. Because previously he'd be taking around on the back of his motorcycle. But for what he had in mind, and for what they were later to do, he needed her to be able to drive a car or a van, small minivan, Uh, nothing big, just something in which, of course, you could hide a body. So you now have what I would say was an accident waiting to happen. Um
0: well, it's not an accident is it because it's like sounds like he's just totally gearing up for this to do this thing.
1: Yes. Well perhaps it's also so oh, okay. significant that on the 1st of June 1963 Brady moves in with Hindley and her grandmother.
0: Well I mean that makes sense.
1: Yes. Was still quite rare, nineteen sixty three.
0: Oh yeah, of course, because you wouldn't live together unless you were married, would you?
1: We are talking about nineteen sixty three. But I
0: mean, they come from such splintered, yeah,
1: fractured, yeah, dysfunctional, yeah, all of which applies, yeah. Background. So
0: I suppose there is also a sense of them making their own kind of family, they having each other in that way.
1: Yes, it's so difficult. the, The obvious thing to say is that. Brady's the villain and she's just the sorcerer's apprentice. That that has never worked for me. I think she's every bit and was every bit as much to blame as he was. And in fact, at one point, long, long after the murders were committed, she told her solicitor, I think I was worse than Hindley. It was me who enticed the children.
0: Me worse
1: than Brady. Sorry, me worse than Brady.
0: Enticing. Because
1: I was the one that enticed the children.
0: Well, I can understand how she might say that if when you think back and you do have a Catholic upbringing or sense of Catholicism, that when you look back on a crime that you've been part of, if you've provided the victim, if you've been complicit in creating this situation for which he could commit the crime he wanted to commit... You would probably feel more guilty because it's the same as that not being there to save her friend from drowning. It's like, you, you know, he's evil and you're putting an innocent victim in his way. So that that, you know, well,
1: one of the things that's very interesting about the case and we'll come on to it is that whenever she came to recount the killings, she was always somewhere else. I was in the bathroom. Uh, I was sent outside. Um I, I was looking the other I was looking out the window um I've never found it convincing um I think and Leslie Ann down which we'll come to um for me is the absolutely you know the, the thing that proves it beyond doubt that this was not teacher and pupil no,
0: she was clearly complicit, definitely
1: yeah, yeah, and the crimes that they were to go on to commit um in one memorable phrase uh, punctured the psyche of. A country punctured the psyche of Britain. I mean, mm. they went. These were crimes which were unimaginable. Well, in
0: Well, I mean, he got as famous as he wanted to be.
1: Did indeed. Uh, they were, perhaps, it would be fair to say, apart from Jack the Ripper, the most famous murderers of the twentieth of, of that hundred years between, mm. say, eighteen seventy and nineteen seventy. Yeah. Whereas America had set sets of them. Yeah, true. Whereas, whereas in Britain we didn't.
0: I mean, we're a much smaller country.
1: Yes, but th- th- as you know, I've done a lot of work on American uh, serial killers and they are yeah. you know, much more common. Yeah, yeah But um, Brady and Hindley were quite extraordinary. And I want to draw a line, July 1963, because they've now been together for a year and a bit. That he's moved in and he comes up with a plan. He decides, and I think they decide jointly, that they are going to abduct, kidnap young children, use them for their own advantage, to their own advantage sexually, and kill them. So I would like to break. Understood. Okay. On if effectively, the first real killing is on the twelfth of July, nineteen
0: sixty-three. Great. Okay. Well, that's the Moore's murderers part one. Thanks, Dad.
1: Yes, it's it, it, it is a fascinating story. Yeah. Totally. Um, and was it chance? I think yours is an excellent question. Was it chance that brought them together, or did he? Was he searching for someone to be a partner? Was it something... I she mean, set something off in him?
0: He must have... I mean, it's an obvious thing that it would... You know, a woman or a couple tempting a child or enticing a child to come to them is... is, is it, it will work more easily than a man doing it if he doesn't have a dog or whatever thing that, you know, we've discussed, a sort of decoy. Yeah. So maybe he was thinking of that also.
1: Maybe, but... What came first here, the chicken or the egg? Mm. Did she say, why don't we? Or did he say, I tell you what? Everybody always thinks that it must have been braided. I'm much less clear about that. I think she had a lot to do with it, particularly when we get into the killings. But let's talk about something cheerful for a minute or two. Uh,
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: What are your plans for this coming
0: so busy.
1: Good. Well that's great.
0: I'm seeing I'm seeing a lot of theatre. Well, good. And I'm going to the premiere of yesterday, the Richard Curtis Danny Boyle movie.
1: Well, it will be very good.
0: I'm sure it will, yeah, It'll be very jolly.
1: I'm sure. Um What do so, yeah. what plays you might might you be seeing?
0: I'm seeing Small Island at the National. Yep. I'm seeing Blythe Spirit in Bath with Jennifer Saunders.
1: Oh, that's rather fun. And, and you can you you can you can get back from Bath, can't you? Uh,
0: Yeah, but I'm going to go back to Mum's because Betsy's at Mum's. Oh, I'm
1: going to collect her on the way back, yeah. Yeah,
0: and then I'm going to Death of a Salesman for the third time. <laughs> I would say third and final,
1: yeah. I think. <laughs> I think I've seen Death of a Salesman three times. I don't think I can probably see it no, again. No, you
0: should see this production because it's really, really, really good. It's just that I've seen this, will have seen this particular production three times. <laughs> which um, uh, I saw... De- I think I saw Deep Blue Sea five times, but Helen McCrory was so extraordinary in it and I loved it so, so much that I didn't mind.
1: No, I've seen Deep Blue Sea a lot of times mm. <laughs> with all sorts of people. I've seen it done badly. I've seen it done well. Um, when it's done well. It's Helen
0: done. McCrory eating the egg at the end of that play, even if I think about it now, will make me cry.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: Um okay, super, well, thank you very much and it's an absolute um, pleasure well
1: should we thank
0: we should thank everyone who again uh, again always um uh, thank you to audio boom, who are now hosting us and looking after us and being great thank you thank much, you to very our much. producer Poppy. Damon, who has also been great and is great, and that's nice uh, Barney Spiegel, who did has been helping us with the sound, thanks Barney, and uh, thank you Jeffrey, for doing all the hard work, I now only turn up, which is great because um, I've got a lot of other stuff to
1: do, quite frankly
0: and thank you to my brother Dan for the music and my friend
1: George Lee, who
0: did our caricature
1: and most of all, thank you To all of you who listen, we both appreciate it very much. Thank you again. Just one final thought, as I try and say every time, do be careful out there.